Good morning, good morning. So we, we hold the church calendar somewhat loosely in our hands here at Redeemer. So this is uh, the first Sunday of Epiphany. It's the season of Epiphany. We're not going to get into that every week for the, for the entire season. So I, I like to, when it's time, do an Epiphany sermon. If you want some Epiphany food during Epiphany, you just come on back and listen to this sermon a second time. <laughs> but um, what's interesting is in writing this sermon, I thought of something that I, I just wanted to explain because uh, back in the day when I first started preaching now 10 years ago, I used to give the former pastor here a break during Christmas. And so I, I preached Christmas sermons pretty much exclusively for eight years or something like that. So I did this little trick where I, I would write a new one and use last year's, and then I would have two. And, and I, I don't think most people noticed that every year I was preaching one of the same sermons again and again and again. Oh, you knew. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not nearly as clever as I think. Well, and what, what would happen during Epiphany is I started um, to work on every year what I call my theology of light. And, and what, I, what I thought of is I learned very early as a husband that if you read a lot and you study a lot, especially if both um, husband and wife do, eventually what can happen over time is you diverge wildly from one another. Um, and and I, this has caught me several times. I've heard my wife say things that I was a little startled by in public uh, and vice versa. Let me tell you, when I say skinny branches, I get out on the skinny branches in theology she agrees with that statement wholeheartedly. So what you have to do is occasionally sit down and talk theology. <laughs> Especially after you've, if you've been reading a book, you have to sit down and talk about it. This way, what you have to do is in your own home, keep unity on your doctrines. You never want to be surprised. Um, this is I, Marriages, sometimes some person goes Eastern Orthodox, and, and the person who's married to them is shocked how it happened. And it happened because they were not staying on the same page when it came to theology. So my point in saying that is some of you may have heard some of the things that I've said here today before. But, but what I want to do is go back to something that is central to, the, to Christianity to me and sort of update you on what I've learned. <laughs> so if, if, if you've heard something that I've said before, as Paul says, uh, repeating myself is, is fine for you, it's good for you, it's easy for me, and it is, it's a lot easier. Um, so, but if you're new... This is a, a developed idea at this point, and, and so it, it's very tight logically, but if you just bear with me, I think it will, it will become clear. You'll have an epiphany at the end, as you are supposed to. Our texts for this morning are actually two texts. I'm going to mention them and then not actually really talk too much about them again. The first one is John 8:12 and Matthew 5:14. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. But what does that mean? What does it mean that he's the light of the world? What does that actually have to do with actual light? As I've said plenty of times, as modern Christians, we hear ideas like uh, the marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church, and we think it's just a metaphor. We don't really think about what does that have to do with actual marriage? Well, it's the same thing when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's not just, using, he's not just being poetic. He means something very significant by it. And if you want to understand what he means by it, you have to understand what light is. What is light? How does it function? How do we use it? And, and when you come to understand that, you come to understand what Jesus means when he says he's the light of the world. Okay, so with that introduction to the introduction, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the mystery of the incarnation. We thank you, Lord, that you are, in fact, a, a God that is too big, too glorious, and too beautiful to behold with eyes of flesh. And we thank you that Christ came, and in the flesh, Lord, 
and, and walked amongst us and lived with us and looked along the experience of being a man, Lord, that he might um, be with us down here, Lord, on this earth, that when we look up into the heavens that we would, that we would look through Christ, that we would look at Christ, that we would see into the deep heart of heaven that no man can behold, we see it in the flesh in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we come to understand that today, that we, it would enliven our faith, that we would not be mere hearers, but that we would be doers of the word, that we would not merely contemplate the person of Christ, but that we would experience him. We, we praise you and we thank you in the name of your son, and amen. Now, the Bible is swathed in the imagery of light. The imagery of light is everywhere, both literally and figuratively. What we tend to do, though, is make the mistake of thinking the figurative ones are literal and the literal ones are figurative. Now, physical light springs forth as the first created thing. The very first created thing is light at the beginning of the biblical narrative. And that's actual physical light. Then at the end of the story, the light of God obliterates all traces of darkness. And here is this, is this reference to light metaphorical or, or literal. The book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 5, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Now what in the world does that mean? Between these two beacons, the imagery of light makes nearly 200 appearances, we, we, um, with light emerging as one of the Bible's most important and complex symbols. Now, the prologue of John's gospel draws heavily on Old Testament symbolic language, equating the word, the logos, with the light of God when explaining Jesus' identity. If, we, if you think that the, <laughs> the gospel of John, especially the prologue, is complicated, it's even more complicated than you realize. Because what he does is he takes a very complex Hebraic idea and a very complex uh, Greek idea, and he doesn't just use them, he, he puts them together. So if you go into Greek philosophy and you study what the Logos is, and then you go back and you read John's Gospel, it's shocking what he says. Okay, then if you go and you read the Old Testament and you, and you come to understand how light is used in the, in the Hebraic mind, what it represents, that is shocking all by itself. Okay, now you put the two things together, and somebody is going to have to sit down with a diagram here and explain to me how these two extremely different ideas are connected. And, and isn't that life? Right? Aren't, what are we always saying? Everything makes sense in Jesus. And, and as an example of that, here are these two very complex ideas, light and logos, that God, John puts together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? So your pain and suffering and the promises of God Two very difficult, very complicated ideas that don't go together are somehow reconciled in Jesus Christ. So when we start to sit down and piece these things out, what we're doing is learning how to live with Jesus Christ. We're learning, when you, when you take ideas like Logos and Light and put them together in Christ, you're learning how, how you're supposed to live your everyday life. Here's the thing that doesn't make sense, and here's the thing that doesn't make sense all by themselves. And then you put them together, it makes even less sense, but Jesus reconciles it. That's what you're doing when you're reading scripture, if you're studying scripture and not just reading scripture. The full symbolism of light merges with the person of Jesus in the doctrine of salvation, in the knowledge of revelation, in wisdom, in life, in healing, God's presence. Darkness, on the other hand, always refers to sin and opposition to God. This creates a bold Christological statement of, of standing Old Testament traditions of darkness 
right? You put them in Christ. All that time in the, in the Old Testament when we said those who are darkened in their minds, those who are in the darkness, those who are sitting in darkness are opposed to God. What John does is he, he takes that idea and applies it directly to Jesus. The person you were always opposed to is Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 19 to 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, the Apostle John develops this dualism. Later in his epistle, his first one, in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light. Now, I I don't live in in, in the northern hemisphere where it's dark half the year and light half the year. I live here. The sun comes up. I see the light. We turn the lights on. I'm, I'm in the light. Is this what it means? Standing here with this light down on me, is this what it means to live in the light? Well, no. It's Jesus is the light. Oh. So you live in the light. Oh. And, and do you see how complex this idea actually is? So, <laughs> this is what happens every year at Christmas time. I hear people talking about light, and I'm always in my mind, do we have any idea what we're saying? And, and, and generally, because we, we take our faith for granted, we think it's much more simplistic than it is, most of us have no idea what we're saying. And that's why we have to stop and think, what does it mean to walk in the light? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the light? In keeping with the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul comes along and makes things much clearer. This revelation in Genesis establishes, uh, the, the revelation in Genesis establishes a link between light and God's presence. If you go back and look, what happens? There's darkness and chaos. And the first thing that God does when he comes is he brings light. So when God comes into chaos and darkness, he brings light with him. And that's the first thing he establishes. The first thing he establishes in creation is light. And then he goes on from there. He does the exact same thing in new creation. When God shows up to do his work, the first thing he does is say, let there be light. It's the first thing he does. When I was sitting in darkness at the age of 22, the very first thing God did was turn the lights on. Right? He couldn't show me anything before that because I sat in darkness. You say, right, and this is why when you're dealing with apologetics, when you're dealing with unbelievers, we we act as if we're going to point at something and they're going to just see it. Well, what's the matter with you? Look, it's right there. And and the lights are not on, and they cannot see it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I could, I could really rip off of that verse right now, but I'm going to save that for another time. I just decided what my next sermon's about. <laughs> not ourselves. Not ourselves as Lord. Interesting. Okay. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shows up in your life, and the first thing he does is he turns the lights on. He says, okay, now let's look around. 
Now, in addition to this, those who follow Christ are, in fact, called children of light, Ephesians 5.8, while those who oppose the way of Christ are described as those living in darkness and night, 1 Thessalonians 5.5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now, what I want to do is consider what it actually, what, what all of these things mean when you start to put them together. What does it mean that Jesus is a light? What does it mean that we walk in the light? What does it mean that we see by that light? What is all of this? How does it function when you're, when you're sitting down at, at the table eating Cheerios with your kids? Right? When you're walking at the park with your wife, what, what does this have to do with that? Because that's what we do, right? We sit down with our Bibles and we look at the scriptures and it's very hard to see what these complex ideas actually have to do with tying shoes. What this means... Okay, what we're considering here is that not only that light is something observable, but that it is something that you use to observe. It's not only something that's observable, it's something that you use to observe other things. Now, what does that mean? Right? Think about it. Do you ever, at, at nighttime, you go out and you get in the car, do you turn the headlights of your car on so that you can get out of your car, walk around to the front of the car, and stare at headlights? Is that why we have headlights on our car, so we can look at them? Well, no, right? Now, here's the other thing. You're driving in your car, you have your headlights on, and you see things. Do you see the light, or, do you, or do you, does the light allow you to see what's in the darkness? Now, that's what, I'm ta- that's what this whole thing is about. Light is something that is there, that's observable, that is also the thing by which you see by. That's, that's the function of light. This application of Christ to life is what C.S. Lewis meant when he said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. His headlights are Christianity, and he drives his car around, and, and few people better than him see by that, the light of the gospel the world that he's driving around in. He sees the light, and he sees by the light. Now, this is what I want you to consider today. Not just observing data about Christ, but seeing by Christ. Looking along the beam of the light to experience. Okay? Too many of us are standing in the driveway staring at our headlights. we got to get in the car now, and we got to put it in reverse, and we got to use all those lights to get the car down the road. And all of that is a metaphor to say is you need to see by Christ so that you grow in sanctification and and get out of your driveway and get on the road and get moving. That is what many of us need to do. In one of uh, his most famous essays, and and here we're going to take a side path, but I'm telling you it goes back to the main road. We're going to drive the car over here for a bit, but it's going to lead back to the highway. In one of the greatest titles I've ever heard for an essay, this is C.S. Lewis's Meditation in a Tool Shed. Meditation in a Tool Shed. I wish I had come up with that. He describes one time that he stood in a dark tool shed and suddenly became aware of a very strong beam of light shining through a hole in the wall. He, was, he could barely see in there. And then all of a sudden he becomes aware, because the sun must have come out from behind the clouds, this sharp beam of light coming through a hole in the wall. He could see the light. He could see it. But when he stepped in front of the beam, he ceased to see the light at all. The light disappeared. Or did it? He could see by looking along the light, 
He could see blue atmosphere and green leaves of a tree and at some great distance, the sun. He no longer saw the light, but saw by the light. At once, the light was experienced. As soon as it was experienced, it ceased, he ceased to see it itself. It disappeared. The light was still there, though, wasn't it? But it became, at that point, the means of seeing, not the thing that he saw. Right? Now, I'm just going to let you think about that for a moment. He sees the light, and as soon as he walks over and looks out the hole, he no longer sees the light, he sees by the light. And what does he see? He sees the whole beautiful world outside of a tiny hole in his tool shed. Now, one way to understand this is the, is the, the deep philosophical question that I like to ask my students. Does a fish know that it's wet? No. Right? Who said that? You get an A+. Plus. Yeah, girl. Look at that. She's coloring. She's not even looking up here. She says no. That's a catechized kid right there. Right? It has no idea it's wet. Why? Because it's the only thing it knows. Right? It has, wetness? What are you talking about? Now, likewise, can any of us describe weightlessness or the absence of air? Now, if you fly with Blue Origin, you can, but most of us don't have that privilege. Most of us have no idea what weightlessness is like. None of us have any idea what it's like to live in a place without atmosphere. We live in a creation, and like gravity and atmosphere, we have never experienced living outside of it. Now, we have looked so long along the light that we don't know it's there. This is the first task of belief, to see that there is actually a light. As I've said before, the first thing to do is to see that there is actually a, a, a thing that we're seeing by. There is actually a substance called light. We are in darkness because of the absence or perceived absence of light. Okay, now, I'm, this is where it gets a little complex theologically, but think about this. If, if Christ is the light of the world, does he say, I'm the light of the, some of the world? Well, no, he's the light of the world. So, so why doesn't the world see him? Well, because the, the fish can't tell you it's wet. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 16, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. Now, what this is astoundingly saying is that everything is in Christ. Now, that's not the same thing as you being saved and you're being united to him in Christ. That's a different kind of in Christ. But the whole world is wet. The whole world experiences gravity. The whole world experiences atmosphere. And that atmosphere and that gravity is Jesus Christ. We're constantly in him. And, and so what we, what we do is we don't, we're not aware of him because, because in everything we see, everywhere we look, everything we do, he's just there all the time. And so what you're asking an unbeliever to do is describe being wet, and they can't. They have no concept of what we're talking about. Now, C.S. Lewis, speaking of this Colossians verse, said, Christ is the all-pervasive principle of concretion or cohesion whereby the universe holds together. Jesus is not creation, but the cosmic divine glue that holds creation together. Now, again, I'm just going to state something very carefully here. I'm trying very hard to describe this, and even what I'm saying is partially heretical. 
right? Jesus is glue. No, he's not glue, right? But in order to help us understand what I'm talking about, I'm going to say something that is less true in order for us to understand that's more true. What did he just say? Think about it. Jesus is the glue, the cosmic glue. And, and he, right? It's like when you go and you see something that Byron made, a bookshelf. You're like, where's the joint on this thing? He's hidden it, right? I have no idea where the corners are. Like, how did you get these two things to stick together? You're running your hand along. You're like, it's so smooth. It's like one piece. That's what the world is like. So you're like, okay, show me the glue, right? Show me the nails. What's holding this whole thing together? It's Christ. We are not aware of the cosmic glue of Christ because everything, our brains, our lungs, our lips, our cars, our houses, our driveways, our tacos, and our taste buds are all held together by the same substance. The sky, the sun, and the stars, the mountains are all held together. They are all in Christ, and Christ then is in them. Just like we rarely actively think about gravity, we just stand up and walk along experiencing the gravity, we are always experiencing Christ, rarely actively aware of his presence, his light, his atmosphere. We don't see him, because by him, like light, we see. Now, we never experience his absence, though fallen man ceases to be aware of his presence, and in that lack of awareness, they sit in darkness. That's what it means to sit in darkness. Absolute unawareness. What light? I have no idea what you're talking about. What glue? No idea. Atmosphere? No concept. Wet? I'm not wet. Conversion, then, is to be made aware by God of the light of Christ. To stand in a dark tool shed and become suddenly aware of a great beam of light shining through the hole. To be taken out of water, out of atmosphere, out of the air, out of, uh, out of the atmosphere that we're in, and, are, and being able to perceive, to, be, to give, be given an awareness of his presence. Bishop Usher, that great Irish divine, well worth looking up. If you don't know Bishop Usher, you should give him a shot. He says this, God dwelleth in the light that no man can come unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, except Jesus show him unto, unto us. Where does Jesus live? He lives in the light that no man can see unless he shows it to us. 1 Timothy 6.16, Jesus Christ who dwells in unapproachable light. It's unapproachable. So how do we approach it? Now, Bishop Usher continues, It's not that Jesus is hidden in the darkness, for he dwelleth in the light, but that the dullness of our sight and the blindness of our hearts cannot reach unto that light except he declare himself unto us. Like as the sun is not seen by, by his own light, so God is not known but by such means as he hath manifested himself. Now what does that mean? We can see the sun only by the light the sun itself gives us. Is there another light greater in the, in the solar system that is able for us to see the sun other than the light of the sun itself? This hurts my brain just talking about it. Does it hurt your brain? It hurts my brain. I literally, halfway through this sermon, I, several times I would get out a piece of paper and write down what I'm actually talking about. You cannot see the sun except for the, unless, except for the, the light that the sun itself gives you. You cannot see Christ unless, unless it's by the light that he himself gives you. He has got to turn the lights on. He's got to take you out of yourself in order to look and say, oh, look, I, I am, I'm wet all over. 
Now, this light, this light that he lives in, is our salvation. It is our being. It is our identity. That's why we're children of light. But it has to be revealed to us. Someone has got to flip the switch. Luke chapter 1, verse 78 through 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lewis's greater point in his essay, Meditation on a tool, in a Toolshed, is that seeing the light and, and experiencing the light are two different and very important things. Now, I've taken his essay and I've hijacked it, but his essay actually is very important because he's talking about moderns, modern people. And what they do is they, they, they don't talk about experiencing the light, they just talk about seeing the light. All that matters is looking at the light. Let's measure the light and weigh the light and smell the light and taste the light, and we know all the facts about the light. But what is it actually like to experience the light? That, that's his overall point. And this is very important to understand before we proceed, because I'm going to steal it, use it as a crowbar. This is what he explains in his essay. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. But this is only a very simple example of the difference between looking at and looking along. A young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. Her voice reminds him of something he has been trying to remember all his life. And 10 minutes casual chat with her is more precious than all the favors that all other women in the world can grant. And amen. He is, as they say, in love. And now comes the scientist and describes this young man's experience from the outside. For him, it is all an affair of the young man's genes and a recognized biological stimulus. That is the difference between looking along the sexual impulse and looking at it. When you have got in the habit of making the distinction, you will find examples of it all day long. The mathematician sits thinking, and to him, it seems that he is contemplating timeless and spaceless truths about quantity. But the cerebral physiologist, if you could look inside the mathematician's head, would find nothing timeless and spaceless there. Only tiny movements in the gray matter. The savage dances in ecstasy at midnight before Nyagan and feels that every muscle and in every muscle that his dance is helping somehow to bring the new green crops and the spring rain and the babies. The anthropologist observing the savage records that he is performing a fertility ritual of the type called so-and-so. The girl cries over her broken doll and feels that she has lost an actual friend. The psychologist says that her nascent maternal instincts have been temporarily lavished on a bit of shaped and colored wax. Modern man wants to make everything about pseudo-scientific observation. Cold, rational scrutiny. Soulless, materialistic science. And that is what we have done to the Bible. Modern man must learn that experience is the missing ingredient to understanding our world. Now, I want to apply this idea to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Using the light to see, looking along the light, is what living out the Christian life is supposed to be. We have separated knowledge from action, though. 
We are not legalists, not by a stretch. We're Gnostics. We're Gnostics. If you think that we are legalists, I have some books for you to read. We are Gnostics. We think thoughts, we make observations, and what we do very little of is experience. The experience of Christ from inside, from inside the light, that is what's been lost in moderns. We're we're not saved from this mistake just because we're Christians. Looking at versus looking along, experiencing versus observation, contemplation versus enjoyment. Now, Lewis thought through enjoyment and not contemplation, a Christian truly knew God. Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In your light do we see light. Now, the ESV study Bible notes on this verse, the fountain of life is a source for all that refreshes and sustains. As we read in Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one man turn away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one man may turn away from the snares of death. Now, to see light is an idiom for experiencing life. Job thirty three twenty eight. He has revealed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. My life shall look upon the light. It is the light of God that shines into darkness. God's light illumines uh, the world for his people. Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Jesus says in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. By following the light, experiencing the light, looking along the light, we experience and enjoy Jesus. Modern Christians apply all of our modern mistakes to our relationship with him, standing outside of him and merely observing what's going on. Contemplating. Studying, measuring, watching, judging, analyzing, data collection. We can tell you about Jesus' two natures. We can tell you exactly how propitiation works. Goodness gracious, we can tell you about what God and the Father and God the Son were doing before creation. Right? We can tell you that, right? We can get down into into his... (laughs) his decrees, and be like, well, this one was one he made before, and this is the one he made after, and this is the one he made before, so that after the fall, this one would go into effect, and we can sit down and we can write all this stuff down. And, and I look at it and I think, who in the hell are you talking about? Who is this diagram that you have drawn? I don't know this diagram. I don't know what was going on before creation started because I wasn't there. But here is a child who needs me to read them a book. Right? Here is a wife who needs an encouraging word. Here is a neighbor who's saying things he ought not to say about a coworker. What we have done is we've, we, have, we are good moderns. We've turned the whole thing about Jesus into personality traits. We've turned it all in about facts and observations. We watch from the outside, and what we are afraid to do is, is, is experience from the inside. It's all head knowledge. We have the facts. We have the timeless truths. But what is it like to look along the beam of Christ's light? What is it like to see by it? I don't want to just see him. I want to see by him. I don't want to just turn the headlights on and stare at them. I want to get in the car and I want to go somewhere. 
A personal relationship does not consist of a list of personal attributes or facts about a person, right? If I were, if I were trying to in, introduce this young man and this young woman, I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, here you go. Here's a sheet that explains him. Go. Here's a sheet of facts that explain her. Okay, man, look at this relationship you guys have formed. It's beautiful. Right? And we, we open our Bibles, and we, this is what we do. We read facts. We read stories. We get out of systematics, we read notes, we do devotionals, and it's all this knowledge. Right? But how do you actually get to know someone? If you really wanted to know someone, what would you do? Send them an email? Be like, hey, listen, tell me all about yourself in 500 words or less. If you want to know someone, you sit down with them at a table. Right? Whether it's coffee, whether it's beers, whether it's dinner, whether it's dessert. You sit down at someone with a table, and that's when you actually get to know them, isn't it? Now, if you want to know someone, you sit down at a meal with them, and this is exactly what Jesus did. Do you know why? Because Jesus already had the facts. Like, when he came in the flesh, what was he doing? Was he coming here to observe, or was he coming here to experience? Nobody needed to tell him what man was like. He already knew. He had all the facts. John chapter 2, verse 24 to 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Therefore, Jesus didn't come to observe. He came to experience. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you think we could tell Jesus Christ anything about grapes? Do you think we could tell him anything about wine? Is that right? Did he come? He's like, hey, explain this thing to me. Explain yourself to me. Tell me facts. No, he wanted to sit at a table, and he wanted to hear people laughing, and he wanted to taste the wine, and he wanted to eat the fish, and he wanted to get the dust all over his feet, right? He wanted to walk around and and experience people getting dirty feet so he could clean them. Did he need facts, or did he need experience? Matthew 11, 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus came and experienced life, enjoying his time with his people. He enjoyed creation. He walked uh, alone. Right? Think about some of the things he did. He walked alone across a, a sea in the middle of a windstorm. Why did he do that? Now, I know how he used it, but is it perhaps that he just liked to have the wind on his face? Right? That's living. I mean, like, I, I love that kind of thing. You want to you know what living is like? Try walking across the top of a sea in the middle of a windstorm. Unafraid. Right? right? You're not worried about getting wet. You're not worried about a crab biting your foot. He studied farming and winemaking and woodworking and baking, and he used all those experiences to make the kingdom of, of his father known to man. Right? How, he knows exactly how farming works. He knows exactly how baking works. He knows exactly how winemaking works. He knows exactly how woodworking works. He, know, he experienced all these things. And all of his experiences he used to make the kingdom of heaven more known, easier to comprehend. Jesus looked at man and looked a long man and yet remained unstained by sin. Therefore, his perfect blood cleanses us from sin, 
frees us from Satan, and delivers us from death. This is the light in the darkness. But we need to move past looking at the light of Christ and learn to look along the Christ light. To experience him, to enjoy him, to move beyond facts and knowledge towards experience and delight. Now, this is how we're going, where we're going from here. I'm going to take two passages that I think explain this very well. And we're going to unpack those and talk about them briefly. And I, and I hope that when you're done here, you know exactly what it is that, that Christ wants you to get up from here and go do. And that is not go and learn more facts about him necessarily, but to go and look along the light, to see the world differently, to see yourself differently, to see your neighbors differently, to see your children and your family members differently. Now, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. I'm not going to explain every little thing in all of this. I'm just going to read a large enough portion to give what I'm going to say context. Romans 1, 19 through 23. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, seeing the beauty and complexity of creation carries with it the responsibility of acknowledging that there is, in fact, a creator. This is, a, this is Christianity 101. This is a world that did not make itself. This is a world that didn't happen by accident. This is a world that did not happen by time and chance working together. You look at this world, and the world was made by someone. Now, we don't just look at creation, though. This, is, this part where Paul is talking about here, he's saying, don't just see it. Don't just see it. See by it. Don't just look at creation. Look along creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We see creation, and if we look along that light, we see the creator of all things. Creation is like beams of light by which we look along them, and what do we see at the end? The creator. Creation is the light. It exists in Christ and for Christ. It serves him as a guide to him. When you look at it, right, and you just do that, what happens? You don't experience anything. But as soon as you look along it, as soon as you start getting in, let's, let's actually look at what's going on at the bottom of an ocean. Let's actually look at what's going on on the top of a mountain. Let's look what's going on, right, when we just go out in our front yard and start digging down in the dirt. What do we see there? Now, look along it. Right? When you see the complexity of the inside of an ear, you're supposed to look along that, and what are you supposed to see? The one who created it. Now, we either ignore it or suppress it. And what happens? Our minds are darkened. Our hearts are darkened. We look long enough that the beam, uh, at the beam and see God's attributes and power leading us to honor and thank him. That's what He wants us to move beyond seeing it to experiencing it. Because when you look at creation and you look along the beam of creation and you see the creator, then what you do is you start giving thanks. And what you do is you start honoring him. And now what you're doing is experiencing him. That's what Paul is talking about. But what, what, eh, sunshine, whatever. It's just sunshine, right? 
How often when, when things like, especially you live here, I've lived here my whole life, and you know what I start doing when the sun comes out? It's like, it just, it like warms my flesh. I feel it on me. I'm just like, man, this is lovely. And I'm just, I'm just there letting the light look upon me, right? I'm just observing, right? You look at the steak, you're like, man, right? Look at this thing. Look at this beautiful thing. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to enjoy this. This is for me. This is for me to consume right here, right now. This is between me and the steak. Be quiet, kids. But all of the things in, in creation are supposed to lift our eyes up, 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 up. And not just to observe, but to then act upon the observation, to experience something. And what is that? Praise and thanksgiving and honoring God. That's called worship. Calvin states it clearly in his commentary on this text. By saying that God has made it manifest, he means that man was created to be a spectator of his formed world. And that eyes were given him that he might, by looking on so beautiful a picture, be led up to the author himself. We have got to stop looking and observing and start experiencing. And what are we experiencing? Honoring and gratitude towards the living God who put it here. Honor and gratitude towards the living God who gave you the spouse, who gave you the children, who gave you the job, who gave you the money, who gave you, right, the, the broken toe. Wait, what? Yes. Right? I, I, I never am so happy to have feet as when I lose them. I'm like, man, I love my feet. I don't care about my feet any other time. But now that I can't use them, and this is what happens to us. We don't notice, right? <laughs> as soon as you're sick, what happens? You, you start thinking of all those, that glorious health that you usually have. But when you're healthy, do you think of the health? Right? When I'm hungry... I'm like, man, I'm so grateful for all that food that I usually have. I can't wait to go home and get some. But when I'm sitting there at the trough, two forks. Thanksgiving must shape the whole Christian life. We look at the light of nature, and seeing it, we look along it up to the heavens. The appropriate response, our daily experience, must be shaped by the recognition that we stand in debt to God, that his very life and experience of living is a gift. And seeing it, we must look along that light, see God, and have enlightened minds, enlightened hearts. Now, fallen man's rational thought is perverted by sin and emptied of all truth, so that their foolish hearts are, in fact, darkened. Their hearts and minds are foolish, a term meaning devoid of understanding. Jesus asks in Mark seven eighteen, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them. See how he connects, he, he, synonymous there, understanding and seeing. Don't you understand? Don't you see? This is, this is the question for him. Don't you understand? Don't you see? Right? We can talk all about, right? There are all, thousands of people, millions of people out in this world sitting in the darkness. No one's turned the light on. The light's turned on for you. Don't you see? Don't you understand? And, and that's what we have to repent of. This is what we have to fix in our life, is we're just standing in the driveway, staring at the headlamps. Get in the car. See. Go. Now, what is it like once you start driving the car down the road? Right? Once you've you got those high beams on, 
You know, like, oh, there's a deer. Drive around that. Here's a road. Here's a stop sign. Ah, oh, forget the stop sign. There's no other cars. <laughs> Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This has somehow become my life verse. Over time, you just <laughs> this is like the verse I've quoted more than any other verse in the Bible now. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Not in the future age, the present age. God's grace has appeared. The Greek word is epiphany, feast of the epiphany. The word, right? Jesus has come. Jesus has appeared. Jesus has dawned. The word is epiphany. The verb occurs in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, metaphorically, as I've already read, in reference to Jesus' birth. In Acts chapter 27, verse 20, the same word is used literally when the sun and stars appear. Right? The, the apostles are traveling along, it's dark, and boom, suddenly there's an epiphany in the sky, and it's the appearance of sun and stars. Luke is writing his gospel, and he talks about the birth of Jesus, and he calls it an epiphany. Sudden appearance. Now, the only other occurrence of this verb is in Titus uh, 3.4. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Right? When the lights went on. Paul intends this highly suggestive term to illustrate the dawning of the light of God's gospel upon a dark and lost world. Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are a light in the, in the Lord. You are a light in the Lord. You are a light. Now, let's go back and take the whole theology of light that I've talked about, Christ, and apply it to yourself. You are not just something that people are observing. They're supposed to look along the beam of light to whom? You are like little Christs now. You're running around, and you are light in Christ. You are supposed to be the thing that people don't just see, but see by. The, The watching world... Right? What are they seeing? What's the quality of the light? And do they want to look along that at all? Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What? The kingdom of light. God's grace is active and powerful. It sustains in time of need. It provides strength. It produces thanksgiving and glory to God. It affects our conversations. It enables believers to live holy and godly lives because this is why the Holy Spirit descends upon us and it's a flame because the lights have been turned on and you yourselves now have become like Christ in the sense that you are a light in the world that people aren't just supposed to see but see by. Your children are supposed to not just see you, but see by you, right? They're they're supposed to experience you. You you are now a conduit of this light that Jesus Christ offers the world. The grace of God has revealed and and personified, the grace of God is revealed and personified in Jesus Christ. The grace of God is revealed and personified in Jesus Christ. This appearing was not limited to his birth, but refers to his entire life, including his death and resurrection and exaltation, would accomplish the salvation now offered to all men. And that is instructive. It's instructive. That's what it means. The grace that appeared bringing salvation, in verse 12 it says, training us. The grace that has appeared, the grace that has given you salvation is training you. 
Paul says that the same grace that is saving us is training us. The continual operation of God's grace in the lives of Christians is one of Paul's strongest aspirations for the church. He doesn't want us to merely see the light, but see by it. He doesn't merely want us to walk in it. He wants us to be it. He wants us to be something that people see the living God by. That's what you've been elevated to. So why are you sitting in the dark, staring at a light, and too scared to go and look along it? Now, how dare he say such a thing? That is so judgy, dude. But I'm going to ask you this. Are you, is the fullness of God that he promised, are you full of the fullness of God? Is the joy of the Lord yours? Is the strength of the Lord yours? Right? Is it easier, let me just hypothetically, to look at facts about Jesus or to look along the light of Jesus? Right? You think you know him because you know about him. But right, when you look along the light of Christ, what does your neighbor look like in that light? What does your spouse look like in that light? your kids look like? What do I look like? What does your neighbor here look like? The grace of God is teaching us. The Greek word here is pideia. Now, this, this is, I've, I've done a whole series on this. Pideia is not just education, it's worldview training. It has to do with everything. And in, in, we are told by God to fathers to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, in the pideia of the Lord. And, and that is a Greek term, again, that's super loaded. He's raising us in the pideia of himself. And what is the pideia of the Lord? Love, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. He doesn't want you just to see these things listed on a piece of paper. He wants you to look along them. He wants you to be them, to be a light in the world, to experience them yourself. God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. There must be a conscious, willful repudiation of thoughts. He's training us what to say no to and what to say yes to. So your Christian life comes down to yes or no statements you're making about in the real world. This is what I'm saying. Like, you sit down at the dinner table. You sit down at the Netflix. You sit down at the computer. You sit down at work. You sit down with your spouse. You, You drive in the car. What are you saying yes, no? What are you saying no to? What are you saying yes and what are you saying no to? And, and how you're doing with that tells you whether you're driving, right? It's the car. Maybe the headlights aren't on at all. Maybe one of them's out. Maybe they're dim. Maybe there's ice on them. I just had this experience. I never had ice on my headlights before. And I was like, why are these headlights not working? It's because there was ice on them, right? They had macular degeneration. To walk by the light of Jesus' grace is to say yes and no in the present age. And and this is always what he's... (laughs) This is what we don't like. I'm glad you're here, Jesus would say to us. I'm glad. I called you here. Welcome. What have you done for me lately? (laughs) Where do you get off asking that question? What are you talking about? What have you done for me lately? Right? What have you said yes to? What do you say no to? What do we start every service with? Talking about what we said yes to and what we said no to. Right? We, can t- right? we can sit down and we can look all day long at the light, but if we're not walking by the light, it doesn't do us any good. Right? This, this is the, in, in our day, the fight is not at the Supreme Court. It's not. It's not Hollywood. That's what we want to make it about that because that's easier. It's about what did you say yes to? 
What did you say no to? Right now, today. Do you want to do something for the kingdom of God? Right? Look along the light of Christ. Thank him. Honor him. Say yes. Say no. That's it. See how simple it is. He, he starts with these high, holy, right? he dwells in unapproachable light. And he comes right down into your mouth when you say yes or no. When you say thanks or not. When you give him honor or you don't. Right? Stop just standing on the outside looking, observing. Get in the light. Walk in the light. See one another by the light of Christ. See your neighbors and your friends. What, right? What is that light? His light shines on them. What do you see? You see, you can see that someone sits in darkness. You can see that someone has not had the lights turned on. Now, how does that change how you pray for them? How does that change how you serve them? How does that change what you say to them? Your spouse, your children, your coworkers, right? What are you saying yes, no? What are you saying no to? What, are you thanking God? Are you honoring God? And when you look around, what, do you, right? what, light, what is the light that lightens your mind that you see by? It, it is supposed to be Christ. The lights have been turned on. There's no excuse except for our own failure. And if we repent of that, what, what happens? Right? <laughs> what happens? He forgives us and says, okay, go. Right? Get in the car. Turn, drive down the road now. Go where I am leading you. That's the Christian life. That on Epiphany, what we're supposed to understand. Did, God, did Jesus stay in heaven and merely observe what was going on? Or did he come down and did he walk amongst us? Did he experience it? And say, come this way. Stop lingering, right? Stop just standing in your driveway staring at the headlamps. Get in the car and drive down the road. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for your grace, Lord, that has in fact saved us. We, we pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would see the works that you have ordained beforehand, that you have prepared for us. We pray, Lord God, that as we go from here and everything that we observe, that we would see by the light of creation the throne of God, that we would see by the work of Christ the Father in heaven, that we would see, Lord, by the light of Christ one another, that we would not only receive grace, Lord God, but that we would be trained by it to say yes and no to the right things. We, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts and our minds as we go from here, that we would serve you with joy, that we would serve you well, and amen.